Welcome to True Talk on WMNF 88.5 with your host, Ahmed Summer. Summer is traveling and um, it's just me today. So on today's program, we'll be speaking about the role of United Arab Emirates in the Middle East. And there's a new report um, about UAE, which is a small country, um, targeting its other neighboring country called Qatar. Both of them are U.S. allies. However, there's been friction and issues between the two countries for some time now that led to an embargo against Qatar during the Trump administration. That embargo has since been lifted. However, the tensions and the bad relations appear to continue even though officially uh, they have diplomatic relations. What does that all mean as Qatar gets ready to host the FIFA World Cup towards the end of this year? On today's program, I'll be speaking to Professor Mohammed Al-Masri. He's an prof- associate professor of media studies and he's based in Doha, Qatar. He also has a PhD in this topic. That and more, and we'll be talking about uh, different issues in the Middle East. Well, this that's what this show is about. True Talk on WMNF. I'll be right back after this uh, short music break if I just uh, can figure out how to play it.
Real Talk on WMNF 88.5. This is a uh, song by Shab Khalid called Didi. And now joining me on the program is uh, my guest, Professor Mohammed Al-Masri. Welcome to True Talk. Thanks for having me. Um, are you familiar with the song Didi? That's the first time I've heard it, but I was uh, I was jamming to it. Okay. Well, I thought because uh, you might tell us what it actually meant. Um, what is no, DD? No, I have no idea. Uh, I wasn't paying that close attention to the lyrics, and then also it's a different dialect. Well, what not, dialect uh, is it, you think? Um, I believe it's... Uh, is it Moroccan or, or Tunisian? I think it's Algerian. Is it Algerian? Okay, I knew it was one of those North, North African, African war. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, Professor Mohammed Musa, this is not the first time you've been on True Talk. Welcome back. Um, for our listeners that are not familiar with you, since you're a regular guest, um, can you just tell us some of your credentials? Because last week I had a guest on and somebody emailed me and said, you know, great conversation, but what are the credentials of your guest? Mm-hmm. Well, sure. Uh, so I'm a media scholar. I have a PhD in uh, mass communication from the University of Iowa, and I've been uh, working in the academy now for 13 years, and I publish extensively on a wide variety of media studies, journalism-related topics um, in some of the in some uh, you know top-ranked uh, peer-reviewed journals. And um, I also do some political analysis kind of on the side, uh, focusing on Egypt and, and sometimes the broader Middle East. Um, and so I've been on Al Jazeera and, uh, you know, TRT World and CNN and the BBC many times. And, um, and I write for Al Jazeera and the Middle East Eye on, on occasion. Um, are you American? I am an American. Yep. I was born uh, in St. Paul, Minnesota. Um, that's where I'm, I'm calling you from right now. Actually, I'm on my summer vacation, so I spend my, I spend my summers here. Um, but, I, but I continue to work uh, in Doha at the Doha Institute, as you mentioned. And uh, what's your background? You're Arab-American. Um, so I guess if you're American, you're also Arab, you can be both. What other, are there multiple? Because sometimes people think you either can be American or Arab or Muslim. What are mm-hmm. all your, uh, I guess, affiliations or identifications? The diversity of yourself. Yeah. Well, that's complex because we all, we all have these kind of hybrid identities. But I'm, I'm of Egyptian ancestry, so my parents migrated uh to the united states from egypt in the early 1970s a few years before i was born um and uh i still have uh you know a lot of connections to to egypt you know i'm a dual citizen i'm i'm a citizen of egypt and i'm a citizen of the united states obviously um and i'm very passionate about the work that i do on egypt unfortunately i can't go back to egypt because of some of my views um and the you know the the military government has been cracking down, as you know, and as as we've talked about on this show, cracking down on journalists and, and academics and and 
political activists, human rights activists since the 2013 military coup. So unfortunately, I haven't been able to go back to Egypt uh, since January of 2014 when I when I basically had to escape um, and I quit my job. I, had, I was forced to quit my job at the American University in Cairo. Um, but yeah, so uh, that's just a little little a little background on myself. Well, I mean, uh, I guess we're similar now. We were both Egyptian uh, Americans. Uh, the only di the difference is you were born here. I was not. Um, so I, you know, I grew up in, in America, but I was born in Egypt um, and, you know, came over with my parents uh, after uh, I was born there. Um, now, so do you, uh, when you did go to Egypt, do you find that, Egyptian Americans are different than Egyptians in Egypt or? Yeah. I mean, there are a lot of cultural differences. So it's interesting because people can, can identify me as an American, right? As a Khawaga. As soon as I, I mean, it's what does Khawaga mean? Like a foreigner, someone who's foreign to Egypt. So when you're, um, in, when so you're in Egypt, they call you like a Khawaga means you're a foreigner. Exactly, exactly. They can see it in the way that I dress and the way that I talk, my accent. You know, I speak Arabic, as you know, uh, but, you know, it's not the perfect, flawless Egyptian uh, Arabic accent. And so they know. I have a funny story. Once I was flagging down a taxi, and you know this, Ahmed, from being in Egypt. When you flag down a taxi in Egypt, you just simply kind of yell your, the location that you want to go to. So I, this taxi slowed down. He saw me and I yelled, Al-Maniyal, which is an area in Egypt. That was the area that I wanted to go to. And he, um, he responded back to me in English because he could tell that I wasn't, you know, I wasn't from there. Just in the way that I said that one word, he responded back to me in English. He said, $100, $100. <laughs> he was oh, joking. With the... U.S. dollar currency instead of the local currency. Yeah, it was a, it was a it was a trip that would have cost about seven Egyptian pounds, which at the time was about a dollar. And um, he said a hundred dollars, and he just kept driving. I mean, he laughed and kept driving. Um, he didn't want. He obviously didn't want. So to go even to that just even from one word, just the location one you're word. going, you figure it out who yeah. that you're not from there. Exactly. And I think also it has to do with not only the accent, but the way I dress. I tend to dress, you know, differently, I guess, from the How do you dress? Uh, I mean, just I mean nothing. this is radio, so, you know. Yeah, nothing. How, uh, how, are you, how I mean, do you dress like differently a typical than Amer local Egyptians? I, I dress like a typical American, you know. I have, you know, jeans, but the jean styles are different. You know, I tend to wear, you know, baggy You mean they don't wear stuff. jeans in Egypt? They do, but they wear them differently. They wear them differently. It's, it's not a different like they're, style. You know, like, like they're wearing some Arab robes and stuff. They're just, they have their own fashion. And they're yeah. wearing mostly, people are wearing Western, like I guess the clothes you'd have here. That, you know, global. It's That's true, but it's the way, I think it's the way they wear them. I mean, and I wear a lot of sports gear. The sports gear, you know, tends to look different. I have, you know, baseball caps. I don't remember what I was wearing on a particular day, but... You can usually. I think you would you know, describe what you wear as more like a hip hop kind of look, right? And you've had me on uh, in the past to talk about my my hip hop. I guess I didn't mention that right. in the introduction, so, but I but I dabbled. Yeah, you did not include well. this. Yeah, so you dabbled with the rap and hip hop. So yeah, you you have a hip hop look, 
which may be unusual at the time for uh, many Egyptians. Um, now, growing, and, and, and I'm going to get to our topic, I promise, but, you know, you're always kind of fascinating with this thing, um, especially since we kind of share some similar backgrounds. And by the way, if you're just joining us, this is True Talk on WMNF with Ahmed and Summer, but today it's Ahmed and Muhammad. Because Summer is traveling, so uh, our guest, uh, my guest today is Muhammad al-Masri. He's a professor of media studies. Uh, he's an Egyptian-American, Arab-American, Muslim-American, based in Doha, but spends his summers in Minnesota. Um, so, But growing up in America, did you feel like you were American, or did you feel or you know, that you were different than the other you know, Americans a- in your school and stuff growing up? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. I I always felt a little different. You know, I always felt kind of foreign. Um, I actually talk about that in some of my music. But you know, people used to they called me racial slurs. I was, uh, oh, you know, like what I was. Well, I, some of it I I don't think I'd want to say on the air. To be honest with you, I don't want I don't want some of it. May, you may not be some of it. You may not be able to because of the FCC rules. Right. Exactly. Saying? Yeah, exactly. So I don't want you to get in trouble with the FCC. But I mean, I can remember being in elementary school and people calling me slurs and my name was different. My, my, I clearly looked different. I have darker skin than, you know, I don't, I don't look like a white person. And so, yeah, um, you know, I, I stood out. And so some kids teased me. So I never, I never totally felt, um, I guess, from here, even though I was from here and I'm very, very much Americanized. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's always interesting to try How to did you deal re- with reconcile. That? Um, I, I kind of just took it, you know, I just kind of took it. Um, I, I think I probably, if I had to do over, I mean, I'm trying to raise my kids to be stronger and more like, sort of forceful than, than, than I was, um, in elementary school. I think I was, so you're kind of a pushover. I was a bit timid. Yeah. In elementary school, Mm -hmm. I was a bit timid. Yeah. But then when I got older, this is kind of, this is bullying. I think it was, yeah, it was a type of, it was a type of bullying. I don't, it never got, you know, fortunately never got that serious. These were, you know, it wasn't the majority of the kids. Um, it wasn't an everyday thing. It never got violent or anything like that, but, but you could feel it and you could, you, you know, there were a handful of kids that gave me a hard time. Um, but as I got older, I did become more like into middle, middle school and high school. I got, I think more comfortable in my skin and, and was more willing to, to kind of defend myself, um, in those, in those areas. Um, and then when and I you were born college, here, I, really, I mean, you were, you were born here. So, uh, Imagine right. for people like uh, others that were not born here and they came over, right. like, you know, even my own experience coming and I came when I was um, nine years old mm-hmm. and I didn't speak any English, you know, in mm-hmm. Egypt, uh, my parents put me in French school. So I spoke some, you know, French. In fact, I just remember when um, just being, you know, parachuted in the middle of the school year. And the teacher, the teacher couldn't talk to me. They didn't have anyone in the school speaking Arabic. It's not like, you know, you speak Spanish and they can bring, you know. So mm-hmm. they found, they found out I can speak French. So they brought, they had a French speaking teacher 
at the school mm-hmm. and he would come and talk to me and translate, you know, what they were trying mm-hmm. to say uh, from English to French. And I understood French. And um, yeah, I remember the kids could be, you know, at first, they were really, you know, I thought that, you know, being very friendly and nice, of course, everybody looked different. But it wasn't that much, uh, it didn't take long for like, you know, the teasing and the bullying. And I remember at one point during the summer, not in my school, but in the summer, we went to like a neighborhood playground. And then these kids just showed up and uh, they would make fun of us and would call us things like my brothers and I, you know, like sand and and the N-word. And um, Mm -hmm. I didn't know what it meant. And then they would all Mm -hmm. laugh. Mm -hmm. And then I would go and repeat it back to them, like call them the same name, thinking, okay, that will make people laugh. And then they would get confused, like, you can't call us that. It doesn't work. And they would call me Camel Jockey. I'd say, oh, right, Camel so. Jockey, you too. And then like, they're like, uh, no. <laughs> so um, I didn't realize until later that these words that they're getting are actually coming from uh, television and movies that you know that were used and these young kids learned that from these shows Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um and one time we actually they did this thing uh, which would have been i guess considered the first hate crime i was subjected to Mm -hmm. because it's actually it involved you know uh some sort of assault we're at the plague we were at the park uh and then these kids came by and they threw eggs at us and uh, of course, we were like, okay, there's, you know, there's no words. Uh, so we understood that that's not something nice. And, you know, of course, it smelled, and it was so hot that day. Mm-hmm. By the time we made it home, it smelled so bad on our clothes and stuff. And mm-hmm. uh, my, my parents were shocked. And of course, it wasn't school. Like, we couldn't do anything. And like, we didn't know who those kids were. So it wasn't like we called the police. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that was our welcome, you know, to America, and then realizing that that there's a lot of racism and discrimination here against foreigners. So, um, yeah, um, interesting. Interesting. But, yeah, very interesting. Yeah. I didn't. I didn't but, know that you spoke French. Yeah, and, and and but it didn't. I didn't take it lightly. Like I did get in a few. Uh, you know, when they actually pushed, I would push back. One time, you know, it even happened during the school year. Um, in middle school and you know I ended up getting detention or something because you know some kids try to bully me and I you know hit them um, and you know once I did that I they didn't bother me again but you know I, I got right. detention I guess for the day but you know I tried to tell them that they were being racist or they were saying these things and they're like well you can't let people that use words like that get to you and the ter- teachers didn't understand that you know this is racist you know, they didn't treat mm-hmm. it like, okay, this is, or they didn't have this zero tolerance. Right. And most of my school was white. So I think we had like one black person in our school or something, you know, so they mm-hmm. were not even exposed to that much diversity. But anyway, this right. is not about, you know, you and I growing up today's show, but it's turning out to be that way because I guess you get two Egyptians on the show and they just want to talk about themselves. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, um, we got we got a little we got a little sidetracked, but uh, I, uh, hopefully it'll be interesting. Right. Still interesting, it'll be interesting to learn more about you and you know and uh, and just rec- you know recall these uh, things. And it's just interesting how these things shape us for the future. You know, like things we go through uh, mm-hmm. as kids, uh, and then how they impact us now. 
they didn't impact me. I don't think they necessarily impact me in a negative way. I think they made me stronger, but I could see how other kids that have different experiences of bullying or being treated in, you know, um, subjected to racism and discrimination, uh, it could also turn out differently. Now I had, you know, my parents mm -hmm. were supportive and stuff, but, um, others, you know, may take a different route where they want mm -hmm. vengeance or they grow up hating society, um, or et cetera. Um, and especially now with all these mass shootings that are happening, I would think that, um, it, it, I just, you know, I don't know, of course, there's no one reason source of why these, you know, young people, especially young white people go on these mass shootings. Um, and there's no justification for, and of course, accessibility to guns is so easy to, to, mm -hmm. to get guns. So you got somebody that's angry and they can just go get a gun and they're rejected by society or whatever, or they're mistreated or they have a chip on their shoulder and their solution is go shoot up everybody. You know, it's just like uh, right. crazy. Um, right. I don't know if you have an opinion on that before we get on our, I mean, you saw what happened in Texas with the mass shooting and it just, it just seems like it's yeah. just never ending. Uh, and yeah, that's complicated. It's a com I mean, I always say that there are so many variables at play. Uh, we'd, we'd need a whole episode just to talk about my views. Not that I'm an expert on that, but I, mean, I, don't, I don't even want to go there because there's so much I'd have to unpack. But I will just say quickly, um, in response to a question that you posed uh, a minute ago about how our experiences as kids influence us, I don't think there's any question that what I went through as a child influenced me as I got into my teen years and then into college and ultimately kind of dictated that I wanted to work in this field because I, I was concerned about racism and stereotyping, especially through the media. And that's what I do my research on. I, my, my research is all about how marginalized groups are presented and portrayed and stereotyped in uh, mass media. Um, I, I've done work on um, how uh, black people in the American context, context are, are reported on how Muslims, how the issue of terrorism is talked about, uh, Palestinians, and a whole host mm -hmm. of other issues. So there's no question that what I went through as a kid influenced kind of how I then made choices later, later in life. And the media that people and young, especially young people consume at a young age shapes their views and perspectives on life. So, I mean, that's why it's really important the type of work that you're doing with um you know the, the studying the racism and the discrimination and how media covers different communities uh, mm -hmm. disenfranchised communities and that role the complicit the complicity that they may be playing directly or indirectly into furthering these uh you know uh divisions or stereotypes uh in society no absolutely, like absolutely. more and more people more and more more and more people rely on media. Now you have social media. So, I mean, before it was the mass media. Now social media, a few people right. can make something go viral and it becomes kind of true. Um, with that, people don't do much fact-checking. It's just like we live in a society now where nobody fact-checks anything. And just because something yeah. becomes viral, then it just has a huge impact. Sometimes that impact is even more impactful than a news outlet themselves. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, uh, you're right. And I think all of this just underscores that we really need to emphasize media literacy for our young people. I mean, I think our children as early as elementary school need to be taught 
um, about how to read and interpret media messengers because they're bombarded by them, whether through entertainment media like movies and music and video games, but then also you have news media, you mentioned social media, right? So advertising, which we haven't spoken about. So we're constantly sort of bombarded by these messages and we don't always have the tools um, with which to interpret and analyze them and understand them. And I think we need to emphasize that more as a society. Right. And if you're just joining us, this is True Talk on WMNF 88.5. This is the uh, global affairs show that focuses on the Muslim world, the Arab world, and Muslim Americans. Uh, The reason that is because I'm Muslim American and my co-host is also, we're both Arab Americans and we talk frequently about what's happening in the Middle East and and the Muslim world. Since the United States for the past uh, 20 some years and beyond, but especially the past 20 years with the war on terror, has been involved so much uh, with uh, the Muslim world and and, and what's happening there. Um, Speaking of social media and media campaigns, the media is used, um, uh, oftentimes uh, groups will uh, weaponize or use the media to launch misinformation campaigns. uh, And and they especially do so through um, a combination of social media, but they're also able to somehow penetrate mass media or mainstream media to further uh, political campaigns. And one of those that I want to talk to you about is the story, um, which, where is that story? The story about a misinformation campaign targeting the state of Qatar. Qatar is a small country, which actually that's where you're based. That's where your university is or your, uh, where you're teaching. And this article in Dohanews.com uh, or Dohanews.co, um, I guess there's something called Q-leaks or Qatar leaks unmasked. Who is behind the major anti-Qatar disinformation platform? Um, a simple, uh, and it goes on to say that uh, sensationalist headlines, clickbait, videos and wild accusations of support for terrorism stormed the virtual world in 2017 when the region's biggest political crisis in decades erupted the gulf uh countries the gulf meaning the arab gulf or these gulf countries countries like we're the biggest country in the gulf area um in that gulf area is saudi arabia but there's also bahrain Oman, qatar uae yemen uh, can you just remind our listeners what happened in 2017? Yeah, so basically, let's. Yeah, I think it's good to take um, to kind of take a step back. Basically, even you know, let's let's even go back before before 2017. Um, obviously, in in 2011, around that time, late 2010, 2011, 2012, you have the Arab Spring erupting in a number of um, Arab uh, societies. And at that time, uh, this tiny state of Qatar, uh, which houses Al Jazeera, which is a very powerful uh, media outlet in in the Arab region, they were supportive um, of the Arab Spring and and these these democratic uh, movements. They gave pretty favorable coverage, and they were very critical of the authoritarian regimes. Well, other countries in the region and some of the Gulf countries that you mentioned, in particular, the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia, 
they were very sort of displeased with uh, Qatar and especially with their media coverage uh, via Al Jazeera of, uh, of the Arab Spring. Saudi Arabia and the UAE both felt threatened by the Arab Spring. They consider democracy and protest to be, you know, sort of an existential threat to their to their regime. So they didn't want to see the Arab Spring happen. They certainly didn't want to see it spread. Um, and they they began this kind of war um, on uh, political Islam uh, because that was political Islam was central to the to the Arab Spring, right? Um, they they began a war on 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 democracy and they began a war on uh, on Qatar and um, you know I don't want to oversimplify because actually it did start even prior. I mean some of this goes back to even before the before the Arab Spring, but I mean I think the Arab Spring played a major role in let's say intensifying this rivalry. So uh, Qatar drew the ire of the UAE, drew the ire of Saudi Arabia, and these countries launched campaigns against uh, against Qatar. So if you go back to 2012 now, right, this is fascinating to me, uh, the United Arab Emirates founded a company in California comprised mostly of Bush administration neoconservatives, right? These were the people that were leading the organization. Some of them had ties to Steve Emerson. These were, these were Islamophobes. They were neocons very far-right uh, figures um, in American society. The UAE founded this company, and its sole aim or its primary aim was to basically discredit uh, Qatar uh, and to plant negative media stories about Qatar in the American uh, news media. The company still exists. It's called the Camstow Group, and they've had some success in planting negative media stories about Qatar and linking Qatar to terrorism, right, uh, in CNN and Fox News and a host of, uh, a host of uh, newspapers. And this has been exposed by, uh, in the New York Times, it's been exposed by uh, The Intercept, who did a, a, a really interesting um, kind of investigation into the Camstow Group in 2000, back in 2014. People can just Google it. If you just Google Camstow Group, um, and the, the the intercept, you'll 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 find it. Um, but and then in 2017, to to directly answer your question, in 2017, the UAE and Saudi Arabia. What was Arabia, that group called? Uh, it's called the Camstol Group. C A M S T O L L. C A M S T O L L. So if you just Google Camstol Group and the Intercept, you'll find this really interesting investigative report that kind of. So you're, you're, but why, like, how is it that uh, a Muslim country, like predominantly almost 99% Muslim country like the UAE, would establish and fund a very Islamophobic or organization filled with anti-Muslim activists, some of the biggest names in anti-Muslim activities in America, why would they fund mm -hmm. them? To do right. to attack Qatar, I mean, it doesn't that seem like that would be like a violent, like worse against their own interests? Well, yeah. Well, look, it, the, with all due respect to the to the United Arab Emirates, they're not the most you know religious. Uh, the, the regime is not the most religious uh, group, right? They're they're pretty they're pretty secular. 
um, and they want to survive. And the, they've calculated, I don't agree with them, but they've calculated that the easiest way for them to survive long term is to ally with Islamophobes and break down anything that remotely resembles what they call political Islam. In other words, a Muslim who believes that politics, that Islam has something to say about politics or about, about public life. And so the UAE government has actually become one of the most Islamophobic governments in the world, right? I mean, they've declared, not only do they declare obvious groups like ISIS and uh, Al-Qaeda terrorists, um, they've declared the Muslim Brotherhood a terrorist organization, right? Counter to the, you know, all of the Western intelligence and most of the countries in the world, including the United States, which does not consider the Muslim Brotherhood a terrorist organization. But even more interestingly, they've declared CARE a terrorist organization. They've declared um, Islamic Relief, which is a charitable organization that gathers funds for for impoverished uh, peoples and people that are victims of natural disasters, they've declared them a terrorist organization. So they're deeply Islamophobic. Um, they're funding a very unique form of Islam, a very narrow form of Islam that suggests that Islam is strictly spiritual. It's about purifying the heart and that it's, you know, has nothing to do with, um, with society, nothing, nothing at all to do with, with society. So, um, that's the UAE's story. There's a ton of evidence, you know, a lot of research that's been done uh, on that. So in 2017, as you know, Ahmed, um, the UAE and Saudi Arabia, along with Egypt and Bahrain, announced that they uh, they were going to uh, do this sort of, uh, I'm trying to remember the English word, blockade. Embargo? Uh, blockade. blockade. Uh, but that blockade was... Against that was an, that was immediately after, days after President uh, Trump paid, made his first international trip, which was to Saudi right. Arabia. And right. a lot of people said that, you know, somehow that while there he gave them the green light to do this blockade against Qatar. Right. So that's, why, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to start with the history. So this goes back several years. But then once Trump came to, uh, you know, came to power in the U.S., they viewed this, the blockading countries, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Egypt, they viewed the Trump administration as an opportunity. They thought he would be supportive. And, you know, in some ways he was, at, at least individually, um, of their of their attempts to marginalize Qatar and to demonize it as a supporter, as a supporter of terrorism. And so they announced their blockade against Qatar and they issued a list of demands. And one of the demands was shutting down Al Jazeera. So they were very transparent, very explicit. They weren't subtle at all. They said, we want Al Jazeera to be shut down. We want the Arab Center for Policy Studies to be shut down. Um, they, they demanded the exile of, of certain uh, political figures that, that live in, in Qatar. And of course, Qatar um, rejected all of their demands. Um, and basically just sort of said, okay, well, if you're going to do this blockade, fine, then, then do your blockade, but we're not going to, we're not going to concede anything. Um, and then in 2021, it, it had become clear that the blockade had failed. Qatar actually ended up coming out of this looking much better. They, they were, they were able to become self-sufficient and independent during those four years. Um, the UAE and Saudi Arabia actually got a lot of negative media press. 
um, about the blockade. I mean, it actually ended up backfiring on them. And it, it really just failed um, for, for those blockading countries economically uh, and politically and diplomatically. And so they were forced to walk it back. And they said, OK, we're ending the blockade. And, and there's now officially uh, a truce, right, between, the, between the, these, these countries that were once, um, you know, officially enemies, right? Uh, but the bitterness uh, remains, the, the, the coldness uh, remains, and the rivalry remains. And so you still see this, what you call the disinformation network um, at, at work. And that's what this, uh, this Qatar leaks, um, this, this Q leaks uh, expose showed it's that basically that the united arab the united arab emirates is still out there trying to spread disinformation about qatar through uh social media the social media sites that they've um uh that they've set up and it's a lot of you know fake news a lot of propaganda um and this investigation that you referenced kind of basically uh uncovered the network and and how how it all ties in, how it ties together, and how it works, and it's a, it's a fascinating uh, expose. So, uh, is Qatar a democracy, or is it? I mean, as far as I know, it's a monarch, so it's not much different than the uh, UAE um, and and the other monarchs there. Uh, but why are they going after them and? Why would a monarch like uh, Qatar, Qatar, is it Qatar or Qatar? Well, in Arabic, it's Qatar, Qatar. So, I mean, in, in English, you obviously, uh, you have some letters in there, the Qaf and the Ta that are very difficult, I think, to pronounce for anyone who doesn't speak Arabic. So, in English, they typically say Qatar or Qatar. Qatar. Those are the two. Qatar. Those are, okay. those are, the, those are the two pronunciations that I've heard in the, in the media here. So why are they, why would they be accused of supporting democratic movements or others? And are they? Well, well, they, they do support democratic. I mean, so it is not a democracy. Qatar is not a democracy, but um, they've supported uh, democratic movements. They, they have a very different vision. They're a very different society than, than Saudi society. It's, it's, it's more open. The, the, uh, the former Amir, um, Sheikh Hamad was, you know, he was a visionary. He's the one who established Al Jazeera in the mid 1990s. He wanted uh, kind of a free media that would report critically on uh, on the day's events, and it was it was obviously the first of its kind. It was a shock to the Arab system, and uh, Arab authoritarians in Saudi Arabia and the UAE and Egypt and elsewhere were very bothered by it then, and they continue to be bothered by Al Jazeera now. Uh, Qatar has, has a different vision. They, they, they're all about trying to establish forms of soft power, whether through Al Jazeera or through sports. Obviously, the World Cup is going to be held in Qatar later this year, uh, you know, starting the end of November. Um, Qatar owns a number of high-profile uh, sports teams, you know, they've established a city in Qatar called Education City and Medina Ta'limiya, where they've, they've established American college campuses like Cornell, Texas A&M, Northwestern, uh, Georgetown. 
And um, these are forms of soft power. They, they invest more in education than any country in the world um, on, a, on a per capita uh, basis. And, um, and, and so this is a this, very this, tiny country, right? This is a very tiny country. It seems like they're, over, they're spending way more or disproportionately on these programs uh, like education, like media studies. They hold... Conference. It seems like they're holding conferences year-round, uh, mm-hmm. international summits. It's become uh, this hub of, I guess, intellectualism and debate. There, I think they even host things like the world, Econ- uh, like a form of the World Economic Forum. So there are all these type of, um, I guess, diplomatic. Mm-hmm. Um, they can. They, they're establishing themselves as a convener of some sort. So are these all meant is a different way for them to survive? Uh, because they're, they're a really tiny country. I mean, they're very small compared to Saudi Arabia and other places. So maybe instead of, um, you know, knowing that they can't take on militarily or physically uh, countries like Saudi Arabia and others, that they do so by uh, using these other forms of soft power. Is that what you're saying? I think that's part of it. I think that's part of it. Um, but I think, I, I just think that we have to be very careful not to assume that all of the leaders in the Arab world are exactly the same. My, my sense is that the leadership in Qatar is just fundamentally different, that they value things differently than, than the leaders in, in Saudi Arabia. And that's why they support these, these different projects as you're talking I about, mean, whether it be education right. or, or, um, you know, uh, you know the, the investments in sports. Um, I guess if you the, were sh- if you were to democratic say to, movements, if you were to say to, that they value these things, then they probably would adopt them for themselves. But maybe they've seen them that strategically that this is a better approach through dialogue. I think that's part of it. I, I think that's part of it. I think it's it's important to note too that look, Qatar does not feel threatened in the same way that Saudi Arabia and the UAE do by the notion of democracy. Uh, and part and 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 part of the reason for that is because Qatari citizens themselves and and the Qatari government recognizes this. Qatari citizens themselves are generally very happy, and they're I'd say it would be very unlikely that they would, you know, protest or or demand a new form of government or or something like that. Remember, Qatar has the highest per capita income in the world. So Qataris are quite content. They're, they're quite happy. And they're very proud, by the way, of the things like the World Cup. They're very proud that their, their, their country owns, uh, major soccer teams in, in Europe, that they, they hold, uh, you know, the Doha, the Doha debates or the Doha World Forum, that they have education city, that their children can be educated at Northwestern University. Um, and Georgetown and when Cornell say, and such as say, A&M, they, without even leaving, without even leaving their, without even leaving how their, is, their, their country. How is that, how is that possible? How are they study at Georgetown, Cornell and Northwestern I, University? I, I was just saying them? they have a, I was just saying they have education city and Medina Talimiya. So they have campuses established there for Northwestern and Georgetown, Texas A&M, uh, Cornell. And I think one other university that I'm forgetting. So this, um, so uh, you, uh, High, you know, this uh, these uh, prestigious American universities have campuses and they give degrees in Qatar. Absolutely, um, absolutely, and okay. and Qataris are very Qataris are very proud of all of this. They're proud of what their government is, and they're proud of Al Jazeera. 
they're very prodigal Al Jazeera. And and while it's true, I mean, you know, Al Jazeera covers the the political affairs in the region very critically, but they're not particularly critical of the Qatari government, as we as we probably you know expect. I mean, I don't think anybody would be surprised to to to, to hear that, right? But that, right. that's not something that's not something that you know bothers uh, a majority of of Qataris. There's some you know there are some disagreements. I don't want to present the Qatari population as a monolith, right? There have been critiques of Al Jazeera, um, you know, by Qataris, but for the most part, um, it's something that they, they, they take a lot of, they take a lot of pride in. And I think as long as Al Jazeera exists and as long as it continues to, to be critical of authoritarianism, it's going to clash with countries like the United, United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia. If you're just joining us again, or more kind of towards the end of our program here. This is True Talk on WMF. I'm speaking to Professor Mohammed Al-Masri about a, um, a targeted campaign targeting uh, and a misinformation campaign targeting the country of Qatar. Um, and it seems like it's the UAE uh, that's behind it mostly. Um, and Professor Al-Masri has been going through some history that this is actually going back uh, a decade or more, uh, especially with the Arab Spring, that these two neighboring countries found themselves on the opposite side of uh, the Arab Spring and further conflicts, whether it was in Egypt or Libya or Tunisia, or even in, um, I guess, in Syria, um, that they found themselves on opposite sides. For example, I was reading that in Libya, the uh, Qatar was supporting um, the groups that were uh, rose up against Gaddafi, whereas the UAE was funding military leaders that were aligned with Gaddafi or are remnants of the Gaddafi campaign uh, regime. Gaddafi being the dictator that ruled um, uh, Libya for for decades. Um, same when it came to Egypt. Um, so, and you 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 had mentioned earlier. That one of the demands when uh, UAE, Saudi Arabia, and others in the region uh, did a blockade, complete blockade, including even air and land blockade against Qatar, uh, to the point that Qatar only had one way out. Like even I think their flights couldn't, were very restricted in how they flew out of their country, and most of their own like uh, imports and food. Uh, came from Saudi Arabia and other places. They, uh, you know, they're trying to starve them, I guess. And one of the big demands was that they'd have to shut down Al Jazeera. So, uh, as you were saying, that Al Jazeera was a big threat to them. Um, why do you think that the UAE fears the spread of democracy and and in the region? Or why why, why, why do they seem like they they, they have such a yeah. zero tolerance, or they're so allergic to? the spread of, you know, the people are able to choose their own, the right to self-determination. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think it's, a, honestly, I think it's as simple as uh, their own survival. You know, they, they view it as a threat, an existential threat. They're, they were terrified during the Arab Spring that, that it would spill over to their, to their country and that their, you know, their leadership would lose all of their, privileges they have a lot of obviously power they have a lot of wealth and they didn't want to um, risk you know um giving that up and so they've taken this very antagonistic 
position on democracy. I think the thing that's most shocking is the extent to which they're willing to engage with this very explicit Islamophobia, which, you know, you asked that question a few minutes ago, I mean, about how can they possibly, they're, they're Muslims themselves, so how, how could they engage in this kind of behavior? And it, it is shocking, it is strange, it seems to be a, a contradiction, right? But there are sellouts, right, in every, in every community, um, and this is a very good case in point. But when you get to the point of, you know, um, uh, working ex- with, with the most passionate Islamophobes in the world, um, s- you know, spending millions of dollars to try to uh, prop up uh, um, anti-Muslim uh, um, propaganda, I, you know, I don't know what else to call you except, you know, an, an Islamophobe. Um, so it's a, it's one of the things that I think e- that affect even American, American Muslims. It's one of the things that we have to, you know, as, as an American Muslim community kind of try to come to, come to grips with and, and grapple with, you know, how do we navigate all of these things when we have a, a major country like the UAE declaring some of our Muslim American organizations, terrorists, the Muslim Student Association the Muslim American Society, the Council on American Islamic Relations, Islamic Relief, among others, all of them have been declared terrorists by a Muslim majority government, um, the United Arab Emirates. It's, it's fascinating and tragic at the same time. Um, well, how is this all going to lead up to the World Cup? It just seems like the, as the World Cup nears, the misinformation campaign continues. Um, to pick up steam and I thought this blockade uh, was eventually lifted and these uh, former, you know, the tensions between the UAE and Qatar and Saudi Arabia have now, you know, kind of stopped, but it seems like the campaign is continuing. Yeah, I, I, it is. And it is continuing. And it's interesting that you mentioned the world cup again, because, you know, we've only really scratched the surface on this rivalry, this hatred between the, you know, that the UAE holds for uh, Qatar during, you know, when, when Qatar was bidding for the world cup in 2009, 2010, uh, the UAE was lobbying FIFA uh, so that FIFA would not grant the world cup to Qatar. And then once the announcement was made that Qatar had been, uh, that, that Qatar had won its bid, I think this was in 2011. That, that it was announced that they would be getting the 2022 World Cup, the UAE actually intensified its efforts and tried to tried to undermine the decision and tried to get um, tried to get FIFA to reverse the decision. That went on for years, and so you know this is going to continue not only in the lead up to the World Cup, but it's it's going to it's going to continue uh, at, you know post World Cup. This is a very deeply rooted uh, political rivalry that the UAE sees as uh, a fight for for its survival they do not want to see um a repeat of the of the arab spring and i don't think they're going to rest until uh until al jazeera is either shut down or that it either completely changes its its editorial policy well um mohammed al-masri um thank you for being on true talk and thanks um, for having me appreciate it we enjoy enjoy um, the rest of your time in minnesota and 
thank you for having uh, hopefully we'll try to have you again uh, on true talk in the near future that would be great i appreciate that um let me see if i can try to play some music as we exit this has been true talk on wmnf 88.5 with ahmed and summer npr news is next and after that it's radio it's well no not that's more good programming from wmnf um, have a great weekend this is true talk on wmnf This is WMNF Tampa, 88.5 on the left side of your dial. Best little radio station on planet Earth. Stay tuned for NPR News. And after that, still will be in with three hours of music. And Sean Canan is sitting in for Nancy C. today, so don't go anywhere. Hey, 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 h